3278 of the Survival Podcast. Um, I think this will be a fun episode. If you are listening in audio, the good news is there's not a whole lot of screen uh, time stuff added into today's episode. Well, you'll need to look up the video to know what the heck Jack was talking about. Uh, So this will be a good one, audio or video. And I'm not going to dig into at least deeply how to grow a Zola or how to make biochar. I've done previous episodes on that. I will probably do an episode specifically dedicated to growing, harvesting, uh, propagating, et cetera, is Zola in the future as I dig deeper into that subject uh, in expansion of my personal experience, which is about five years of playing with that plant now. Um, but it is because I played with the plant for the last five years that I'm doing today's episode because this is a plant, and I recently had someone on that's discovered it and is working on a project with it, that a lot of people are discovering right now. And people are discovering in the prepper space. They're discovering it in the scientific space, the ag space, the regenerative agriculture space, homesteaders, permaculture, you name it. And there's a lot of things thrown around about Azola that aren't exactly wrong, but they're not exactly right. Here would be one example, and this the same thing is thrown around about another aquatic plant called duckweed, and that is it doubles its size every 48 hours. You need to add a word to that sentence. In fact, it's better that you add a few words to that sentence. It would be under optimum conditions, it is possible for this plant to double its mass every 48 hours. And then you can add to that and you probably won't have absolute perfect optimum conditions at any time, but certainly not year round wherever you are, even if you try to create them. So this idea that since it can double its size, we can have an unlimited supply of it. It's a little bit incorrect because that's the insinuation. It's, it grows so fast. You'll never run out of it. Well, because the other side of it is it's mostly water. So it's pretty interesting what happens to, let's say, a five-gallon bucket of Azola that has holes in the bottom to drain the water out of it. And you kind of pack your Azola into it, but it's still wet. And just let that sit in the shade and dry up and turn into, well, we'll talk about how it turns itself into its own compost. It's self-composting over about a week. And then look at how much is really in that bucket. And then understand if we're doing things like using it as a fertility aid or we're feeding it to animals, that's how much is really in that bucket. So I think that while I want to continue to learn more about using Azola in a lot of the ways we're going to talk about today, I'm also trying already to rein in some expectations. We'll also talk about biochar and the way these two things fit together. I'm coming at this today from the standpoint of decentralization, by the way. The Mother Nature has made it to where we don't really need centralization and we don't really need factories making lots of chemicals and things like that. And if you think about this, this would make perfect sense. We're not exactly sure how long there has been life on our planet. We're not exactly sure. We have various estimates. Best estimate at how long the planet's been here as a chunk of rock floating in space is like four and a half billion years. Uh, and it's it's billions of years that there has has been some life on the planet. 
And over time, these incredible ecosystems evolved. We have every kind of plant you can think of. We have perennials and annuals. We have fruiting plants. We have flowering plants. We have just so much stuff. We have all these different animals. And for the vast majority of the time that there has been Earth and life on Earth, there has been no humans. So no humans, right? And then if you look at how long humans have been around, it's only the last little bit of our existence that we've had these industrial processes. So we go back even just a few hundred years, and there's no major factories. There's no chemical fertilizers. There's no chemical pesticides. There's nothing like any of the stuff we have today. So it would stand a reason that nature, with its innate intelligence, has had the capacity to make everything necessary to sustain life on the planet without us. And then we are a natural being on this planet. When people say, like, well, you know, I don't want to go over there because there's wilderness over there. We need to keep people out of the wilderness or whatever. This is incredibly short-sighted, in my opinion. And the reason it's so short-sighted is that we are as much a part of this planet as a native species as any other being or any other creature on this planet. I am as native to Earth as a worm or a bumblebee or an Australian rainbow fish that I'm watching swimming in the tank behind the camera that you can't see. I have every right to be here as a native species to this planet. I am a natural being on planet Earth. I am a native Earthling, just like you are. Now, the thing is that we can think at a higher level, and this can lead us to do incredibly regenerative things or incredibly destructive things or to fit somewhere in between in this place we call sustainable. Right. And, and, and there's people that say sustainable means barely surviving. And I, I tend to disagree. I think the word has definitely been overused, uh, considerably overused. But in the end, I think sustainable means you can indefinitely keep doing a thing. And I think the reality is there has to be some regenerative component to anything that truly is sustainable. All right. And I know we like to make like little technical differentials between things, but these technologies are indefinitely sustainable and they are also regenerative. And I want to come at it from that point today. And I want to talk, we're going to do some thought experiments toward the end. We're going to talk about um, what different sized operations incorporating function stacking these technologies would look like. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. And sponsor of the day number one today is Ridge.com. That is the makers of the Ridge wallet, the wallet that I personally carry uh, everywhere that I go. I carry my Ridge wallet because, well, I carry my wallet everywhere I go. And it's just a better way, in my opinion, after carrying one now for about five years, to handle the need to have a wallet where you carry your ID and your credit cards and stuff like that. Mainly, you know, it's cased in metal that protects all those RFID cards and things like that that are a magnet for identity theft. And it also just it just carries better. I, I put my billfold up on the shelf over there. I haven't really missed it in five years. I don't think I'm ever going back to having a lump on my ass. Uh, I personally carry my Ridge wallet. I use the clip style one, not the band style. And instead of putting money in the clip like a money clip, I, I just latch it inside my front pocket like you'd carry a liner lock knife. Ridge also has a ton of other really awesome EDC products now. They've really become a major company 
I'm so grateful that we've had them as a sponsor for five years and that they've remained a sponsor even as they've gotten bigger. You see they're featured in Inverse, Popular Mechanics, Gear Patrol. Here they are on TSPC. Uh, really gra- glad they're still around. And they are a big supporter. They're not just a sponsor, but 10% off everything at Ridge in the MSB. But I do want to point something out. Uh, unless this changed, because I bought something myself this weekend, and it wasn't taking my discount code, uh, it may it may be already over. So uh, just so you know, the one limitation that we have with uh, with Ridge Wallet is that if they're running a sale, that you can't stack our discount code. So this weekend, I was tr- they had a huge sale running this weekend. I so I didn't know about it, so I didn't let you guys know, and I missed it, or you guys missed it, and I bought uh, an AirTag uh, uh, holder for my wallet because I do put it places and lose it. And uh, it wouldn't take it. It was because everything was marked down like huge. It was like a 25% markdown. So just know that a lot of our, our sponsors and supporting vendors are like that when they do discounts. They don't allow stacking, and you can understand why. So next up today, JM Bullion. I talk about, you know, Bitcoin all the time as a, a part of your wealth assurance uh, program. And I really think it belongs there. But I, I have never stopped recommending silver and gold. I recommend silver and gold at about 10%, 5 to 10% of your net worth. 5% really is about where I'm at with it. Uh, I don't see myself ever changing that recommendation. I think it's a relatively small component of your overall wealth. It's a great way to make sure that you can transfer that wealth anytime you want in a very private manner. And silver and gold have a multi-thousand-year history of being used as money. I don't expect that'll change anytime soon. But the real reason that you need to be using JM Bullion for your silver and gold purchase is not only do they do support the show you love, they do a discount for MSB members. That's one thing. They do all shipping for free. And I can talk to the president anytime I really need to. That means if there's ever a problem, I can get you a resolution from the guy at the head of the ship. So with that, let's start digging into this today. Again, I want to start off from a standpoint of decentralization, and that's the word that gets thrown a lot around. Cryptocurrency, blockchain, Bitcoin, etc. Now that we have Gnostic decentralized information sharing protocol, right? It's not a platform. It's not a website. It's not an app. There's different websites, apps, and, 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 what, and platforms that utilize the protocol, but anybody can create a window into Noster, and it's decentralized. People run relays, et cetera. But because we've gotten so big on the idea of decentralization as a high-level technology term, it's a Bitcoin node. It's a Noster relay. You see what I mean? It's, it's different mining pools all over the world. I think we lose track of the fact that actually decentralization is kind of the low-tech way by which things get done. Because it's low tech in that the individual has control of the situation and that damaging one one node doesn't really affect the totality of the whole. And so if I'm making biochar, you're making biochar and 30 other people in TSP are making biochar and the TSP biochar pool has a certain amount of biochar that we are producing every week on average. If a couple people lose their source of feedstock, it doesn't really move the average that much. And there's room for anybody else who wants to come in and become part of that decentralized production capacity. And so what that means for you is that you have the ability to do this for yourself. And 
when we start looking at Azola or biochar, there are processes that both of them can be used for. There are things that could be achieved with them that are less decentralizable, if that's a word, um, than the main things that we're going to talk about today. Here's what I mean by that. We can use Azola to make biofuel. We can separate the lipids out from it and we can use those to make biofuel. And we still have other products. We have protein and sugars and, and, and different chemicals that can be used in different chemical processes. Remember, chemical is not always a bad word. Water is a chemical, right? It's made up of two different molecules, right? H2O. Uh, so there's different uh, chemicals that can be extracted from Azola that can be used in various industrial processes. And while it is possible to make biofuel in your backyard out of something like Azola, you're probably not going to. And it's probably not worth doing. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of other things you can do with it. If we look at biochar, some of the ways that biochar is being made today are very much an industrial large scale process, but it can still be done by anybody at home. Another thing to think about is if you're doing something on a small to mid-sized commercial scale, this opens up something that most businesses don't really think of. The ability for my customer to become part of my workforce or to have an extremely large, low paid individually, you know, an individual contribution workforce. Because if anybody can make biochar, then if I have a facility that uses biochar, I can either sell biochar or I can buy biochar. If I have a need for biochar feedstock, I can spend my labor to go get it or I can let somebody else use their labor to bring it to me. And since anybody can cut big pieces of wood into smaller pieces of wood and drop them off at a place, you could set up a system whereby you have an awful lot of workers helping you, but your real cost of labor would be a relatively small labor force. And because of that, if one or two people are sick for a week or something, it doesn't really matter. This is where I want you to really start thinking about this term of decentralized a little bit different. Anybody can do it, including you. And that means all the people that are around you could be some level of participant in what you would be doing in the way that we're going to stack this today. I want to say something for the people who are on YouTube because this is bugging me here. Uh, usually StreamYard does a really good job of telling me how many people are watching. Right now it says there's two people watching and there's a hell of a lot more than that in the chat. So I'm wondering how many people you guys see on the YouTube side alone because I don't think I'm getting reporting back from the mothership on this one today. And it's just bugging me. Anyway. Let's start with biochar is easily made at even a significant scale, even in a backyard. So they're telling me 44 on YouTube. Thank you guys for that. I can stop worrying about that. It says four now. That's probably just Facebook or something. Um, anyway, um, you, can, you can use a 55-gallon drum with a saddle cut in it, and you can make about – 25 to 30 gallons of biochar finished product per run with that. So you've got 20 bucks and 15 minutes of work with an angle grinder into it. There's a lot of different ways to crush it so that it's usable, but a couple of ways are, and I've determined that all of the horror stories about using a wood chipper are, are lies. If it's damp, you throw it in a wood chipper, it comes out perfect a uh, leaf vacuum, a good quality higher end leaf vacuum like a steel, and it comes out pretty much perfect. And for large scale, 
They use a great big machine that's basically a giant commercial vacuum, and it comes out perfect. So none of that is beyond the reach of anybody, depending on what scale you want to go to. None of that requires mortgaging your house and selling an extra kidney to be able to afford the entry price into the manufacturer of biochar. When we look at Azola, it can be grown just about anywhere that it's not freezing at the time you're trying to grow it. It definitely has kind of a sweet spot for growing rapidly, and that's going to be water temperatures from the 60s to the low 80s. But it does absolutely survive freeze. Exactly how? I'm not sure. I don't know if some of it sinks and it ends up in little pockets and it just kind of waits it out. I don't know how long it can last, but I have everything here freeze over every year. And I've never had to rebuy a Zola once I brought it here. It'll show up somewhere and then it'll start to multiply. And if it's not in the tank that I want it in, I take some of it out of the tank it is in and put it there. And it, and it grows. And I know what you guys are thinking. Okay, well, Jack has all these pond systems and all. You don't need any of that to grow a Zola. You can go get yourself two or three or four kiddie pools, as long as you don't have ducks that are going to go in there and mess everything up like I do. And if you have any source of, like, organic matter waste, compost, uh, manure, um, you could even use the bedding from your, your duck house or your chicken house or whatever, and you add some nutrient to that water, you only need six inches of water. You can grow all the azola you want for the space that you have. So if you're thinking, well, I, I, I would need all of this really expensive infrastructure Jack has to participate in growing azola, I would tell you, actually, you could probably produce a lot more, a lot lower tech. One of the channels I really like to watch on YouTube is called Dexter's World. And this is a dude uh, in the Philippines that I really love his channel and the work that he's doing. And the way they're farming Azola, they, they dig a really long trench and they line it with a cheap freaking tarp, like a tarp you buy at Tractor Supplier Atwoods or something like that. They don't even use pond liners. And if it only makes it a few seasons, it doesn't matter because it is so inexpensive. You just repurpose that tarp to do something else with it. And they're only going about six inches of depth. But the big thing they're doing, they're putting lots of little slats of wood across that, and they're putting down a, a green shade cloth that's probably in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% shade because the one thing Azola really doesn't like is direct, heavy, hot sun. If your Azola starts to look smaller in size, Turn color toward a reddish color. That's could be bad, could be just it's adapting to water conditions. If the red starts turning toward brown black, it's dying. And it happens to me every year here. There's tanks that there's enough sun on them that I success into some other plants. So one more thing I want to say about this is we're talking about a Zola biochar today exclusively. However, a lot of things that I'm going to say about Azola can be done by other plants. One of the best for this would be a plant called water hyacinth. The problem with water hyacinth is a lot of places it's totally legal to grow and propagate Azola. It's not totally legal to grow and populate, uh, propagate water hyacinth. It's a you know federal invasive species or some shit like that or a state level invasive species and you, big giant uh, fines and stuff like that. But when we talk about what this stuff can do, you know, you can use for water plants, you can use water spinach or cancon. You can use water hyacinth. You can use duckweed. Just keep that in mind, too. So let's do some uses here. Uses for biochar, soil amendment. That's the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. 
it's terra preta it's one component in terra preta anyway with the the dark soil of the indigenous it from from the amazon region it is a home for all the soil biology it adsorbs not absorbs tons of nutrients it becomes a home for fungi and bacterium it's a great it lightens tilth and it holds seven times its weight in water so every pound of biochar into the soil I can hold almost a gallon of water, about, call it uh, five-sevenths of a gallon of water, something like that. It's pretty cool. But there's a lot of other things that it is good for. Another is a feed additive. So if the operation that you have, a homestead, small-scale commercial, mid-scale commercial, has livestock in it, and you're producing biochar for fertility, you can also be feeding it to your livestock. This will improve fetal utilization by 15 to 20%, meaning your feed bill goes down by 15 to 20%. It also reduces the stink and nastiness of manure because it's encapsulated with biochar when it comes out the other end of the critter. This puts it straight into your composting cycles if you're composting your litter, your, 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 you know, your duck house litter, chicken house litter, cow bedding, whatever it is. When the animals are free-ranging, they're depositing it everywhere and improving the soil. So it's a natural fit. But it does some other things. Coop litter. So not only can we feed it to them, we put it straight in the coop. So since I've discovered this, what I do every time I add another bale or two or a couple of wheelbarrows full of wood chips to my duck house for my deep litter system, I spread an entire five-gallon bucket of ground-up uh, biochar. So now that whole system's integrated. That means my coop stinks less. And usually by this, by this time of year, when I go in that coop in the afternoon, it is full of flies. I've barely seen any flies this year. So it's suppressing the insect problem. It's reducing the stink, and it's making a better end product than the compost. Lots of uses. Worm bins. Um, I never really thought about that until I discovered, you know, biochar at a higher level and, and thought about the fact that, hey, this stuff is great to feed to your worms. It gets in your worm bins. If you're running a good worm bin, are full of beneficial fungal activity. There's tons of fungal activity in a worm bin. Uh, great component of the decomposition in a worm bin is, is fungal activity. But your worms are going to actually eat the dust of the biochar, just like a, a bird will eat grit to grind up their feed. So it makes a superior vermicompost product and a healthier worm. And a worm and a worm compost are both financial. Um, assets that you can be, you can sell. They are income streams is where I'm trying to go with that. Um, seed and food storage. So if you routinely store things like potatoes in your pantry, if you'll line the bottom of whatever your potatoes sit in with biochar, they'll last longer. And if you do get one bad potato, it'll kind of mummify instead of spreading its nastiness to everybody else. Same with the bad apple thing. But if you take a small amount of biochar dust when you put so you open your new pack of seeds, you plant so many, you're saving them for next year or the next time you're going to plant. Put a little bit of biochar in those seeds. Your seeds will retain their germination rates much longer if they're stored with biochar. Then we also have heat and energy production, right? So when we produce biochar, we get a natural byproduct of heat that can be channeled to heat something like a greenhouse. Or we can use it to produce, let's say, syngas, and that syngas can then run a generator that produces electricity to be used somewhere else or stored to be used later. So we get all of that from biochar, and 
I'm pretty limited in what I'm telling you so that we don't go forever just on biochar, just what we can do with it. There's over 60 documented uses for biochar. I'm bringing these ones up because I want you to see how they fit in with the Zola, this natural like peanut butter and jelly or chocolate and peanut butter fit, right? Okay, so Azola, what everybody's hot on right now is you can feed it to your animals. And if you look at the cost of feed, right, if you look at the cost of feed, you can understand why people are thinking more and more about this. And if you think about the fact that we in America tend to keep chickens almost like pets, and ducks almost like pets. And if we're paying $2 a dozen more for our eggs that we produce at home than we would buying the cheapest, nastiest eggs in the grocery store, we don't really care. We're like, that's a premium I'm willing to pay. In a lot of the world, especially all livestock, but especially poultry, are kept by people who are subsistence farmers or subsistence homesteaders is in a lot of places, a more accurate term. Maybe they're selling a little bit, but mostly they're producing because they need food. And if you're that person and you're and in some of these areas that are remote where they don't grow a lot of the things that we put in our, our poultry feed, like soybeans, because they're in non-arable landscapes where the reason they rely so heavily on gardening and livestock is you can garden and livestock, but you're not broad scale grain producing. Their cost of feed can be higher than ours. We think of everything in the third world as being cheap, but not everything is. So if you're out paying more for a sack of feed for your, your chickens, then you could pay for a bag of rice for your family of the same size. You're starting to question whether or not raising animals for food is viable. So it's, it's with inflation, it's hitting us, but this has always been an issue. It's why a lot of places in the third world, like the Philippines, have been using Azola as a component for this for a very long time. Now, it's best mixed with other feed, and you'll find that a lot of the, the people that you see doing videos from the Philippines, from Pakistan, throughout Asia, using Azola, they're mixing at about a 50-50 ratio by volume. And this will this you know that will cut your feed bill by about half, especially if we have biochar to it. Now again, start thinking about everything I said and the way these two play together, right? And how to function stack these. So for plant fertilizer, it doesn't have all the micronutrients, but it has a ton of them. And any aquatic plant is gonna have a ton of micronutrients. These are you know your selenium and your uh, you know, your, your boron and stuff, assuming that the water they're growing in or the, the waste source that they're being grown with has that. Now, the beauty of this is minerals, amending minerals is, if done right, a one or two time process. If we're using something like green sand and azomite or something and we do a proper amendment to a grow space, we're pretty much done for a human lifetime. If you have to do a second application one more time, fine. So we can we can make up the micronutrients. So the macros that we need for plants, we're all well aware of. NPK, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Azola is very high in nitrogen. It has enough potassium for plants to be happy. It does not have much phosphorus. Here's the good news. We all are phosphorus production units. Our human waste is full of phosphorus. As much phosphorus as we could ever want. So if you had to really make do 
farming to survive on, and you couldn't get any inputs at all, Azola and your own stink, and you've got a complete fertilizer for 95% of your needs. We can also incorporate urine into our composting and animal waste into our composting and come up with phosphorus that way. But the nitrogen yield is what's really big out of Azola, and it's the thing that farmers spend the most money on. And we need to start using biologically available nitrogen for our plants. And the reason is by killing the soil's life, we are reducing the amount of nitrogen plants can take up from these inorganic sources. What do I mean by that? It's 1960. You plow your cornfield in Iowa. You do what the nice man from the fertilizer chemical company said, and you put down X pounds of nitrogen per acre. Of that nitrogen, what percentage of the nitrogen you added to your soil do you think the corn can take up out of your soil in the year 1960? And because there's a delay on it, I don't have time for to wait for you guys to guess, but it was about 80%. Now, if 80% goes into the corn, where's the other 20% go? Well, eventually it erodes out of the soil and into the groundwater. But it was 80%. So if I put a pound, 80% of a pound went into the corn. Today, depending on where you are, it's between 10 and 20%. It's between 10 and 20%. Part of that's cation exchange, which we can fix with biochar, by the way. But a big part of that is just no life in the soil anymore. So a lot of the nitrogen simply, it's not just that it doesn't end up in the plant because the plant can't get it. It's just a, it erodes and it washes out of the soil faster. And where does it go? Again, into the groundwater. So we have a real problem there. But when we use natural nitrogen sources like Azola, it's very bioavailable. Azola makes nitrogen the same way uh, many uh, legumes make nitrogen. It basically has a relationship with bacteria. And in this case, it's cyanobacteria. It's a little bit different than what the legume does it with, where they're able to take nitrogen out of the air and put it onto their own roots and feed themselves from the air. So they're a water plant that lives off the air. And that means that when you harvest it, it's got way more nitrogen uh, than it needs at any given time. It has a battery of nitrogen. And as soon as we take it out of the nice, happy place where it can grow and it dies, that nitrogen is immediately available to everything. And I've had really great results with potted plants and things like that that are nearby my aquatic systems just by, you know, once a week reaching in and grabbing a couple handfuls and just throwing it on the top and doing nothing else. Like just an amazing explosion in growth from doing that. And that's in a pot in Texas where it's hot. Imagine doing this at broad scale over time, what that can do to a piece of property. So it is definitely a fertilizer. It self-composts. This is something I just learned. Like there's places in in, in, in the Middle East and in, in like Pakistan, I'm watching these videos they go out and they harvest just a metric crap ton of this and spread it out on concrete and they let it dry out and they kind of move it around every day so that it'll dry out. And once it's dry enough, it's not fully dry, but dry enough, they push it back into a pile. And in about 15 days, it's black loamy compost with nothing else added to it. And that's because you're starting out with an almost perfect ratio of nitrogen to carbon. You know what I said? If you fill a bucket with it, you look at what's left after it, all the water comes out of it. That's that's the carbon. 
That would be the brown if you turned it into a brown. So it's it's just a wonderful self-composting plant, but it also has a lot of bioactivity in it. So if you're composting and you add this to your compost, it accelerates compost. Again, I want you to think about how these things play together. Fish feed. Fish feed, especially tilapia. Any vegetarian fish will eat the heck out of this. Now, I'm going to throw a primer out here for like a wild and crazy guy, uh, you know, business opportunity. I was watching an episode recently of uh, uh, Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And he was in a place, I think it was in New Jersey, of all places. And this guy was making like his, his, you know, his amazing thing that people went there to get fish ribs, fish ribs. What the hell do you mean? And I'm thinking this must be like, cause if you've ever had like big tuna ribs, they're pretty freaking amazing. Or like the collars from a bigger tuna species, but no, the ribs were actually not that big each rib. And they looked a lot like baby back ribs on the plate. But they were really like three or four pretty large rib bones, and they were cut into sections. And he did them in a smoker, and all, and they look amazing. I, if I if I ever find myself stranded in New Jersey, I'm gonna look this dude up and make something out of it. It looked a pretty amazing thing. So I'm watching this, and I'm kind of doing other things. It's a weekend. It's raining outside, so I can't work outside. Got other stuff going on, and I thought I gotta know what what the hell fish is this. So I rewind all the way back to the beginning. Do you know what it was? Paku. Paku. Now, some of you are like, I know what that is. And a bunch of you go, what the hell is a Paku? A Paku is every once in a while, you'll see a picture from somewhere in Texas where the thing managed to survive even our winters. And somebody will claim they caught like a 25-pound freaking piranha in Lake Louisville. They're not. They're not piranhas. They are in the same family, but they are vegetarians. And they look a lot like a piranha. You can buy them in any tropical fish store, and the person will try to convince you not to because they get very, very big, and then they don't fit in people's tanks anymore, and people let them go. They would eat the hell out of a Zola. And a Paku fish farm running biochar and growing a Zola would be one hell of a unique niche to be in, and that would just be one option. And they get very big, and they grow very fast. But tilapia is like the go-to farm fish that you can feed a Zola, and there's pr- plenty of protein there for them to meet their needs. And, guys, that you're, you're doing your questions and what have you. If you're doing all caps or if I see it, I am starring them. I've got about four starred right now, including yours, Packrat. We'll come back to it at the end. Um, and then the last is worm bits. I, I didn't think of this until this morning, and I felt kind of stupid when I was thinking about doing this episode, and I went, wait a minute, dummy. So right before I – Came here and did my final prep for this. I went out to one of my tanks and got like two, you know, salt red solo cup party cups full of Azola. I threw it all in with my worms and I'm like, why wouldn't you feed this to your worms too? So you start to look like you have a lot of crossover with soil fertility, animal feed, composting, worms, and outputs that can be sold as income streams. Yeah. So. Let's talk a little bit about growing Azola. I'm not going to talk hardly any about making biochar because I have a two-hour episode that I think covers how to make biochar and how to use biochar better than I, I dare say anything else that's out there right now. And I'll put a link in today's notes for you on the audio side. I just haven't added that yet, so I'll have to make a note to do so. But 
as I kind of already alluded to, you don't need a pond to grow Azola. Let me tell you the story of how Azola changed the planet. This is a theory. This is not proven, but it is a scientific theory. And I think Azola probably played some role in this. About 50 million years ago, the place that I'm sitting right now, if I had been around 50 million years ago, I wouldn't be able to sit here. I would be under a vast ocean that was known as the Great Inland Sea that went right through the middle of North America and came out up near where Alaska is today. Well, when the world looked like that, it was a drastically different place. It was a lot warmer than it is today. I guess those dinosaurs were driving Humvees or something. So anyway, the planet was a lot warmer. And where the North ice cap is, the North Pole is today, was open water. But it ended up ringed by land. It was cut off from the rest of the oceans of the world. It was incredibly salty. And it was a tropical climate up at the North Pole. There was no major land ice at the time, and there was no permanent land ice anywhere on the planet. And this, think of it like a giant version of Great Salt Lake formed. Now, they did get some snow in the winters, and they got rain, and they had mountains and hills, and water flowed into this salty sea. And every time that there would be major evaporation, the salt would get more dense. And we got to a point where when the fresh water came in, it didn't mix anymore. And it floated in a thin layer on top of the salt water. So you had salt water from here down, and fresh water for a few inches up. Well, Azola only needs a few millimeters of fresh water especially if there's a lot of nutrient density and minerals, which the salt water has plenty, okay? So Azola started growing where the North Pole is today. And, again, this is a theory that Azola played a major role in cooling the planet to the temperatures we're at today, not just to the ice ages of the past, but we are in a cold Earth climate time. The natural climate of the Earth is significantly warmer than it is today. And this plant grew in a mat, like I'm talking the size of a country, completely covering it and some dying every year. And this is part of why there's so much oil and natural gas up in the top of the world. And this changed the entire climate of the planet to a more cool planet through the absorption of methane and CO2. That's the theory anyway. Well, That's interesting, but what it tells us is we only need a few inches of water to grow Azola if it could do that all by itself. We know there was a lot of Azola there from the fossil record. So, again, that means that if you wanted to start producing a fairly significant amount of Azola for a backyard operation, a couple of the larger kiddie pools filled about halfway, add some nutrient solution of some sort to it, seed it with Azola, Put it on the east side of your house so it gets sun in the morning and to the afternoon and doesn't get it in the evening in the really hot time of the year. And since it's pools, you can always take Azola out, dump them, and move them to a place that's better for that particular season. You could grow Azola that way. Again, the way Dexter's grown it, they, they dig these long trenches on a flat level. They put a tarp in it. 
They put water in it. They add waste from their animals. And then they seed it with a Zola and they put a 30% uh, shade cloth on it. So it's really easy to grow. You don't have to have a specialized system for it. Um, it also really only requires animal waste. There are people growing it more intensively that are using some nutrient solution, as in the stuff we would use in uh, hydroponics, and you can, but you don't need it. You don't need it. That's kind of the entire point. Uh, the next thing is, I, I said this already, but this is really important. It re You think of it as a tropical plant. It isn't. It does not like to be roasted in the sun. And a lot of tanks, this is worse. Because the tank itself having sides reflects heat and holds heat more. So one of the things to really be aware is if you're doing the kiddie pool things, it's not sunk in the ground. You don't get the dissipation of heat to the ground. You don't get the thermal uh, regulation of being below surface. Your heat's going to come up a lot higher. I said I have tanks every year where it dies. The three tanks that I have right behind my duck house that are made out of four foot by four foot by about two foot deep fiberglass tanks that are up on uh, a pedestal that every year completely turns black and dies. And it does it in an order because one gets more sun earlier in the year. So the one that's all the way to the left as you're looking down the property, it'll die first. The middle one dies second. And the, 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 the one furthest to the right that gets the shade the longest until late into the summer, it dies last. So it is important that you kind of figure out, and if you have more than one place you can grow it, if you grow it in all the places, you'll it'll tell you, it'll tell you where where it likes to be. And I have other tanks that are similar to this. Three more tanks. They're in my metal pond system that you guys have seen in some of my other videos if you watched it. And it's it's interesting what happens there. Now both of these systems. The water's all the same. They all come from the same pump. It all circulates through. So there's no difference in water chemistry at all. The three tanks that are up here, what will happen is right now, the one that's all the way to this side on the left, it grows but grows poorly. The one in the center, it grows like mad. And the one far to the right, it barely survives because it gets so little sun. Later in the year, the, the center tank does okay. The one that it barely survives in now, right? It, it it starts to grow really aggressively, and the one all the way to the left completely dies. Now, again, these are two tanks with the same exact water, and they're two feet apart. So this idea that we can grow it anywhere is true, but this idea that it's so easy to grow that you can't mess it up is wrong. And I think that it, had I only had one place to grow it and it failed, I might have been like, it just doesn't live here in Texas. So it takes some fiddling around with to fine tune what it needs at what time of year in your climate. The good news is unless we're talking really hot, like hot tub hot, the water temperature is less important from what I've determined than the beating down of the radiation on top of it. So you can have 85, 90 degree water. It'll do okay. Especially if there's a little circulation. You don't want disturbance, but you want some movement through the water would be a good thing. Um, but what it can't handle is 110 degree sun on top of it. That it just it doesn't like that at all. So I want to make sure I brought that up. Here's a few things to know about biochar before we go into our thought experiments, which I'm so excited about. I'm interested. 
interested to see what ideas you guys get in the live chat, right? Even though it tells me there's only five of you here, they're on my little feedback loop. We know it's not right. Um, but I want you to really gel all this in your heads. And when we start going through this thought experiment, I want to hear from you guys in real time. You tell me anything pops in your head. There's no stupid ideas here. Some things might not work, but they're not stupid because they might work if you tied something else to them. But one thing you need to know about biochar is the primary outputs, the primary things you can get by pyrolyzing feedstock for biochar. You get biochar. You get heat. You get syngas. Somebody's almost syn. What is it? Like synthetic, not syn. Like you know, you committed to syn. Syngas, synthetic gas, and you get wood vinegar. Those are your four primary outputs. The more you want of one, the less and or lower quality if you get of the other. So if you want the best biochar you can make, then you're going to want to shut down before you start turning into ash. So you're going to get less heat, right? You're going to get less uh, syngas and you'll get less wood vinegar. If you want heat, then you want to burn longer because some of your hottest burn is toward the end. You start to actually burn some of the charcoal itself. So if you take more heat, you get less biochar and lower quality biochar, but more ash in it. So we have to realize as we start thinking about piecing things together, if you're like, well, what I want to do, man, I want to make biochar. I want to heat my greenhouse and I want to mine Bitcoin. You can do all that. You know, I want to produce electricity and my mind Bitcoin with the surplus electricity and run pumps with the rest of it. You can do that to a degree. You're, you're only going to get so much syngas if you're making the best biochar you can, which should probably be your first priority. The, the commodity that is the biochar itself is so valuable to your system and to the market. It's where the most value is as a product. If you, the heat is a byproduct and that just is about putting it in the right environment so the heat can be used. Wood vinegar, it's a little harder to crack in a backyard scenario, but it can be done. But just understand like there is a limit to how much energy you'll have available when you're making biochar. The next is, um, if you are going commercial, especially where you'll need permits or anything like that, some of the people that come in to give you your sign-off from the Department of Making You Status that you're allowed to do the thing that you should be allowed to do, the emissions requirements they put on you are ridiculous. And let me explain how ridiculous. How ridiculous are they? So let's say I put in a greenhouse and I got a commercial furnace that burns wood, like just burns wood, like like a furnace for your house, a wood-burning furnace for your house. I keep my greenhouse with that. It's a commercial product. It came from somebody who made it. It's already got certain emission standards that are required of it. It's a rubber stamp. No one cares. The emissions that come out of that are like a thousand times worse than a good biochar kiln. But the biochar kiln in certain jurisdictions will be individually tested and head to, held to ridiculous standards for air quality. Now, the same operation could have an open pit burning waste wood every day in their backyard, and okay, 
But because we put it into a kiln and because they were calling it a charcoal product, people get kind of crazy. And you also get into a situation where in it, this is the worst situation to be in. Individual bureaucrats with discretion who don't want to give it. So there's a lot of things like if I buy this commercial thing that's already approved, they'll just shut up and go away. Yeah. But when it's something I fabricated or built, which is kind of the best way to go with a lot of this stuff, then that individual bureaucrat is making a decision. Pocket protector guy is deciding whether or not you're allowed to do a thing. And some of these people really like to say no. Worse, if let's say you got the right guy. He says yes. He signs off on it. When he goes away, the next bureaucrat that might actually decide to go out and see his existing you know, stuff that's out there might decide no. So you have to be really careful about where you do this, right, and how you do this as you scale up to a point where somebody has to come around and tell you whether you're permitted to do it or not, which, again, makes it really conducive for small-scale to mid-scale backyard decentralized operations. What do I have to do if I start producing? Let's say I went and put a half acre greenhouse over my west pasture, threw some power over there so I could do it, pumped the water in, it's already plumbed over there, and started running this as a commercial scale operation where I'm at. I don't have to do shit. I'm in an unincorporated part of Tarrant County, Texas. I don't have to do anything. I don't need, I don't have to have zoning to do a commercial operation. I can, I can literally start running a small scale factory in my field if I want to. I don't need shit. Most of this is legislated locally. Everybody thinks that's good until you get the wrong pocket protector guy. So really think about what you're going to have to do, how, and, and a lot of times it's how you phrase things when you talk to people, right? You know, how do you phrase what you're doing? And, and that's very situational. I just wanted to bring that up. So, Let's think about some different sized operations and how this can all work together, right? So let's think about it from the homestead size operation, something like I have here. I have, I have three acres, but I do 80% of what I do on less than an acre, right? There's a lot of space in between it and the ducks, you know, they do their grazing and stuff in that space, but it's probably about 80% of an acre. 80% of what I do is less than an acre. And so there's a lot of urban, suburban homes that have half acre, one acre lots. So you could do almost everything that I'm doing here. And a lot of it would, would work down half acre, quarter acre. You just might do a little bit less. And so the way I look at this from a homestead operation is let's start off with the biochar side of things. I need feedstock. If I'm enough of an urban area, I could probably drive around every fall and pick up bundles of tree trimmings that people put out for waste disposal and get all the feedstock that I want. If I'm a little bit bigger, if I'm doing something like rabbits or any animal that's going to do well on fodder, I could put in fodder trees. The very act of feeding fodder to my animals is going to result in a lot of prunings and things that are larger than they want to eat. There's my feedstock. You start to realize like everything that's carbon based is feedstock. So an example of that would be if I'm growing blueberries, if I'm growing raspberries or blackberries or grapes or any perennial with a woody stock to it that has to be pruned every year, that's feedstock. 
And all I have to do then is develop a system for when the pruning happens, let's go ahead and take the stock size down somehow and let's put it somewhere where it can dry out. And it's completely integrated into my existence at that point. I'm obviously going to then start feeding that biochar to my livestock and cut my feed bill. Yeah. I'm going to do exactly what I've done. I'm going to incorporate that into my bedding, into my chicken coop or what have you. I'm going to put it into my worm farm. And all of my compost, all of my fertility is now going to be magnified in its effectiveness. Every time that I start plants, I'm going to throw, you know, into uh, what I do. Here's what I do right now. I mix up my own potting mix and I mix them in a 21 gallon uh, concrete mixing tub. You know, and, and I'm going to throw you know, a gallon of freaking worm castings in there. I'm going I'm to be making the compost portion of it out of my chicken coop or my duck coop or whatever it is that you have, the compost from that. It's also got biochar in it. I'm going to be feeding the worms biochar. So this is all easily integrated. Every time I take a plant now, a tomato plant, a pepper plant, a shard plant, whatever that I've started in my you know, indoor system, and it's got this big clump of all this biology on it, and I transplant it in my garden. Year after year after year, I'm improving the value of that garden. Now let's add azola. So now I've got the azola. I'm feeding it to my ducks. I'm feeding it to my worms. I'm using it as fertility directly on my plants. Maybe I'm growing some fish that I'm feeding it to. Yeah? I'm cutting my feed bill again. It's a pretty simple thing to look at at the small the small homesteader level thing the urban homesteader the suburban homesteader the urban rural fringe where I'm at it just everything just works and I don't really need to think about it beyond what I should be doing anyway all I have to do is just say okay these two things the Sazola thing and this biochar thing they just fit into what I'm already doing and the biology that you're creating when you do that is 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 it's, it's pretty impressive, and I can see it already just with, like, the worm farms and seeing the fungal activity in the worm farms is kind of insane. And the fungal activity that is in the Johnson Sioux composting that I'm doing that integrates right into this. And then you can take that into an income operation if you choose to. So let's kind of, like, let's just step it up a little bit and say, now we're going to say it's not really a homestead, it's a farmstead that I'm doing some things for profit. So if I'm selling duck eggs, which I do, and I start adding biochar to my feed, I might tell my customers that. I probably wouldn't advertise it because the government says you're not supposed to, but I would probably tell my customers that I'm doing that, at least the ones that I, my customers that I love and have a first rate or first name relationship with and what have you. And the reality is it's not illegal to feed charcoal to animals. It's illegal to mix the feed into the food. It's illegal to mix the charcoal into the food because it was removed as a feed additive, not because it was dangerous, but because it had no nutritive value, which we already knew. It's because the feed companies didn't want it there. And it's, it's being worked on to get it added back in as, a, as an approved feed additive because there's so much work being done around the world. It shows how beneficial it is as a feed additive, especially if you're concerned about methane up into the atmosphere because it literally grabs on and adsorbs methane inside the animal before the animal takes crap. 
And then that methane is made of bioavailable to the plants when it eventually gets to grow alongside that biochar. It, it's actually pretty amazing. Now I want to I start making some money off of this. So what do I have as outputs now? I have this premium quality poultry egg, whether it's chicken or quail or, or duck. So I have that as, but I already had that. Don't you think some of the customers you'd have at a farm site operation would have their own home gardens and stuff like that? Now I've got worm uh, castings infused with biochar and azola as a product to sell. And I would simply say, look at a really good quality one gallon of worm castings. What does it sell on the market for now? And I'd add at least 10% to that number selling directly with that product with a, a chance to educate my customer. You know you're going to have people that want worms. Worms are a valuable thing. You can expand your worm bins to whatever size makes sense for you. Now you have castings and worms. You also have an almost unlimited feed supply for your worms if you're thinking about this. Yeah, it could be a full-time job. Uh, Gooley says he sells mulch and worm castings as a side business, makes more doing that than his full-time job, according to him. Okay. There's a guy that's just doing worms and castings. He's making more money with worms and castings as a side hustle. So that's what I'm saying. This can start to add up really, really quick. So now I'm selling that. You also have composting. And what I'm saying, you got an unlimited ability to grow worms here. And here's why. Assuming you are doing poultry and you have poultry bedding, whenever you don't have enough waste and food scraps to give your worms, and Azola to give your worms, take a bucket, go to your coop, Wear gloves because it's nasty and pick up some of the most uh, adulterated yeah, uh, waste straw and just thin layers on the top until the worms take it down. If you're running rabbits, you can put worm bins directly under your rabbit cages and let the rabbits poop. You can do that with quail, too, by the way. Poop right through the cage down to the worm bins and the worms take care of everything. There's a lot of ways to stack this all together. So you've got product there. If you're doing... Um, a market garden, now you've got more produce, less cost of input, so you've got more profit. And I want you to start thinking, how could we how could we start to involve our customers with these operations as they continue to scale up? Let's go to like the urban farm greenhouse operation or suburban farm greenhouse or even just outside of like close to an urban area where people can easily come. This is kind of my dream if I were to do it myself. I would love to have an acre to two acres under greenhouse and enough ground outside to do some things outside the greenhouses as well. You know, a two acre farm with an acre and a half glass house on it. I would, that would be my, my experimental world gone mad with this technology. If I were doing that, I could then tie into local waste streams for feedstock and make as much, I could probably get more feedstock than I need to make biochar because I want to want to target making my biochar mostly in the winter months when I need the heat in the greenhouse. So I probably got, without without paying for it, maybe even having people pay me to take it, an unending supply of feedstock for my biochar. Even a big greenhouse, acre and a half, two acres, Right. I'm only going to put biochar in there for so long until I've improved the soil part that I'm growing in enough. So now I'm making 
commercial quantities of biochar that I can sell as biochar. This is an expensive product, right? And it's a product with an unlimited marketplace. It's only going to get bigger because now it's an approved thing for carbon credits. There's open orders out there for more biochar than exists in the world. Now, tying into that as a small operator may be difficult. It's only going to get easier over time. So, and as more and more people become aware, more home gardeners, all the different uses, all the things we're talking about, there's a product for the biochar. But what's worth more than the biochar is the biology that the biochar enables. So at this level of sophistication, you should be making fantastic compost. It should be incorporating worms, small livestock, different waste streams, azola, maybe other water plants, perhaps fish waste out of your solid separator. You should be making the most amazing biointensive compost in the world. And the product that you want to sell then is a compost that's 50% compost and 50% biochar, and it's inoculated, and the biology is stable in that bag. And when that person takes it home and adds it to their garden, it's not just fertility. It's not just tilth. It's not just water retention. They're literally seeding your microorganisms into their garden, their farm, et cetera. And you want to market the crap out of that. And the beauty is in a direct-to-consumer model with this, your showroom is your greenhouse. You see how that grows? You want your shit to grow like that? Buy this shit. It's literally shit and burst off. This is how we grow that. I think it's an incredible way to do things. Obviously, worm farms would be a part of this. You take all your bio waste that's not suitable for making biochar, you feed it to your worms. This is where we get into some department of making you sad, complicated situations. And I don't know exactly how this would play out. There are ag regulations. When you go commercial, the start to say about separation distances with livestock, your loophole here would be fish. If you're talking about an aquatic plant or aquatic plants like Azola and other species, then fish are a natural fit. You do have to think about this. If I take a tank and I fill it with Azola on the top and I put fish in the tank, they're going to eat the Azola, including species we don't generally think of as eating a lot of vegetation like bluegill and catfish and all. They will eat some of it. And if there's a lot of other life in there, a lot of critters like Here's an example. Tadpoles will not eat. Let's get rid of this guy. How do I get rid of this guy? I've got a spammer here, and I just like they took away my ability to get rid of him. Oh, it's on Twitch. Somebody ban that prick. Anyway, uh, sorry for the disruption there. So one of my Twitter mods, my, my Twitch mods, get rid of that dude. Um, so then you would have to separate tanks for fish from tanks growing Azola, or you would need some sort of vertical separation that don't let the fish up there to eat it. If you have ducks, uh, cause Jamie's saying that it's great as far as the waste that goes into the water, it will make excellent Azola that can be fed back to your animals or your ducks. But if we're talking a commercial one, two acre greenhouse, we may get into certain areas and jurisdictions where having that livestock co-located may not be kosher because the government is dumb. It's dumb. It's this one right here, Hunter. Gathered replica. Get rid of him. I want him gone. Anyway, um, 
So we would have that. Uh, if you did that right, I would be wanting to grow a significant amount of perennials within the greenhouse so we can extend things. That's prunings for biochar. But I would also want to grow, you know, maybe your fruit trees and whatnot. You know, I said how I want land outside the greenhouse. You grow orchards on the outside of the greenhouse. And your prunings from that are a biochar source. If you had an area with a lot of people that you could sell fodder to, you could literally have a fodder forest around your greenhouse. And you could be selling bales of fodder for livestock. You, you have to start thinking, how many different ways can I monetize this? If you're growing, uh, if you're doing, again, biochar, you're doing inoculated biochar as a product. Um, but the other thing that you could be doing is starting. So for your home gardeners, you're starting plants. And I would be marketing that we're using our own compost and our own biochar and our, our seed starting mixes. That would be another thing that we could stack on top of it. But now we have something really valuable in a greenhouse. We have the ability to go into four season growing, even in very cold climates, because by making biochar a byproduct is heat. And I've seen this done different ways, and both of them have worked in, in different ways would be better depending on different crops, different seasons, different climates. One, and this is more expensive to do, but has longer term results for the right things is you put a ton of pipe in the ground that, that can have water pumped through it. It's an open-ended system, so it's not a boiler. So the water moves through and comes back out the other side, but steam can never build up and cause an explosion. And Bob Wells has done this uh, for, I can't remember the name of the farm. It's a farm in North Carolina that they did this at. And so the bio, the biochar is being made in this retort system Water circulating through a jacket in there and going under the ground. And in the coldest part of the year, the temperature of the soil an inch deep is still 68 degrees. That's a tremendous thermal battery that you're recharging every time you're making biochar. And you're getting paid for the product and you're getting the heat for free. The other way is just heating the airspace, which in some growing environments actually seems to work better. But now we've got a heated greenhouse. Now, remember I said that the, the, the Zola doesn't want to grow in water that's too cold? Well, if we have open tanks growing a Zola, instead of heating the water in the ground, we can heat the tanks, which radiate heat out into the greenhouse the same way. And we can, we can decide, okay, that's enough, that's enough heating of this tank for today with a little bit of automation, a little Adreno action. Okay, stop pumping water into this tank, pump it into that tank. Okay, now stop pumping it back through this tank and go ahead and just heat the air. You can get really sophisticated with some pretty low-tech technology here. Plus, don't forget that plenty of people run greenhouses like this already, and the only thing they sell is the produce, which you should have higher production of. Now, imagine locating this in a place like a Dallas-Fort Worth or a Boston, Massachusetts, or a Jacksonville, Florida, far enough away from the city that the Department of Making You Sad doesn't come too much, but it's not an overdue burden to deal with higher-end restaurants. So being able to bring a chef into a greenhouse like this and go, you, you know those crappy tilapia from China? You could be serving my tilapia out of that tank right there. Here's what our salad greens look like. Here's what our tomatoes look like. Here's the environment that it's grown in. You're welcome to come here and take a look at what we're doing anytime you want.
And then we have all these restaurants and what have you that are starting to put in like their own herb gardens and stuff like that because the customers dig it and all. Um, you can sell your product, other products, your fertility products, et cetera, to them as well. If you're producing wood vinegar, you have another marketable product. You also have a pest suppression technology. We haven't even talked about that much. I am going to put wood vinegar to the ultimate uh, pest suppression test that I can come up with. I have almost no real problems with pests on my property anymore. It's taken a while of good practices and what have you and having the bird patrol out and what have you. But I lose almost nothing to insects. It doesn't mean they're not here. It doesn't mean if you look at my shard, it might not have some holes on the leaves or something like that. But I don't lose production to pests except for one thing. Squash, vine, borers. They're satanic. I despise them. I don't want them to just die. I want them to die a horribly painful death. Nothing I know eats them. They serve no purpose other than to kill squash. And since squash are not in danger of taking over the planet, we don't need them, but we have them. My understanding is if you use a diluted solution of wood vinegar and you spray a plant with it about every two weeks, that it will repel almost every pest you can get. I'm going to spray all my squash vines, and I'm going to grow some of the squash I don't even grow anymore, like plain old zucchini this year, just to see. Does it work at all? I've been told that it works so effectively that you actually shouldn't apply it during the time that the plant needs to be pollinated. So we'll give it a shot on that, see how it works, and get back to you. But if it works, then you've got a pest suppression technology integrated into your system. You also have a product that you can sell. And my ultimate goal, if I ever built something like this, I'd like it to be about two acres. I would like it to be beautiful. I would like it to have be designed not just for the growers, but for visitors. I would like right smack dab in the middle of it with a waterfall with fish swimming around, right? And an Azola trough over here, a freaking cafe. I would like local people to be able to walk into the middle of that greenhouse. Now, I don't know how this works with regs, okay? But I bet there's a way to get it done, to be able to walk right into the middle of that greenhouse, sit down right in the middle of that greenhouse and order a cappuccino or whatever other foo-foo shit they want and sit there and listen to birds fly around in their little finches or something like that, Goulian finches that are worth $100 a pop if you sell them, or parakeets, I don't know, whatever. And have that experience and to be able to, on the way home, say, yeah, I'll take a clamshell of the salad mix for this week's salad mix. That's what I would like to do. And I don't think that anything like that's ever been done. And I'll tell you the truth is, if there was something like that here and they had a membership, I'd be member 001 if they hadn't sold it already. That, that sounds like a pretty nice way to spend a day, especially in the winter when it's cold outside. And I think it would have to be a membership thing and you'd have to kind of have some kind of flow control because you could get it. You know, it's farming. You got a business to run. It could be too many people there. But I think if you did some sort of a flow control with it and some sort of membership, it would be another revenue stream. And you talk about a customer who is dedicated to, to telling your story and to being part of what you do. The customer that has a membership that hangs out and watches fish and birds 
from a cafe in the middle of your greenhouse. Now, the reason it's never been done may be that it's not doable from a regulation standpoint, but I'm just betting there is a way. If you created a, like, here's some, let's do some status jujitsu. So we have the farm and it's business A, okay? And then we have the cafe and it's business B. And the cafe is a customer of the farm, yeah? And the cafe is a co-op. It's run for members, by members, for the benefit of members, and it's closed, You can't walk in off the street and be a member. You have to be part of the co-op. You have to be approved and invited in. Okay. And every member of the co-op has a voting share in the co-op. And then it's a lot like, of course, this person can be here. They're a contractor. They're an employee. They're a critical component. They're a visitor, right? It's not your business, John Law. Go away. Now, I, I hate saying stuff like that and oversimplifying it, but I'm saying that with the right amount of lawyers, there is a way to structure this that works, and one only needs structure it correctly once. Now it is a template that others can, can follow, because I would like to create an environment like this, but I know there's roadblocks to it. Um, there's definitely roadblocks to it, but even if it wasn't a cat, maybe it's not maybe it's not a cafe in the typical way where you come in and pay five bucks for a cappuccino. Maybe it's, there's a coffee machine there and it's always full and there's some other stuff and it's just a hangout place for members and the coffee's free, but there's a membership fee. I don't know, but there is a way to freaking do this. And I got to tell you, you guys know my business head. When I look at what's going on in the world of biochar and I look at the leverage that can be obtained from a fast-growing plant that's a fertility aid and a livestock feed like Azola. In this whole thing, for people that piece it together the right way and tie into the doomsday crap from the state like they want to buy biochar for subsidies or whatever, and you think about how to hook it together right, I smell money, right? And I smell money in one of the best ways you can ever smell money. There is nothing about any of this it's not good for the planet. That's not good for the earth. It's not good for the soil. It's not good for people. That's not good for community. Everything that's being burnt is a waste stream that's probably going to be burnt or decomposed anyway. And if it's decomposed, so much of its value goes into the atmosphere instead of into the soil. This is a no-lose proposition other than if you lose money. And I can't guarantee you wouldn't. But done right, I smell money. You don't want a larger farm, five, ten acres, even something like I have if my soil is a little bit better. I mean, just think of the simplicity of doing something like a civopasture-based operation and the main crops in your tree. So civopasture is where we mix open grazing plains, right, with lines of trees, So we do all our tree lining or most of our tree lining with fodder trees. So we have grass and fodder for our ruminants. And we're going to, in this particular design, it's 10 acres. Let's go with hair sheep like St. Croix or Katahdin or something like that, like Greg Judy on a smaller scale. So now we're feeding the, the hell out of our animals with that fodder. By the very nature of that, we are having to cut a tremendous amount of tree every year to feed the animals. 
when we do that, we get fodder and we get prunings slash that are too big for the animals to want to eat. There's all our biochar and our animals are fed for free between browse and from the, the fodder and, and pasture. We don't have a feed bill because we have structure put in with the civo pasture. It makes it really easy to use electric fence using prune trees as, as uh, fence lines. We have a few livestock guardian dogs in this. We had a rabbit operation like a rob, rabbit operation like John Willis has. You know, one of the biggest risks with livestock guardian dogs and sheep is what most people do is they put a cage around a feeder for the dog. Okay. And then they put dog's food in there and the dog can get in and the sheep can't. And when you, when you come back and you count your sheep and there's one missing and the dog's got some red on his mouth and he's going, hmm, well, that was good, right? And he's looking at the next sheep kind of like, yeah, I'm going to eat you. And you're like, what the hell's up? And there's no dog food? What happens is once those sheep get a taste for dog food, they won't eat anything else if they have an opportunity. So you have to build an apparatus that will let the dog in and keep the sheep out. And the sheep can never know about the doggy crumbles. Well, you know what sheep don't eat? Rabbits. John Willis spends no money feeding his dogs. He raises tons of rabbits. They barely eat rabbits. Every every you know every other day or so, a rabbit is selected for a dog and a quack. Here you go, boy. There's your rabbit. So we could have rabbits dropping rabbit pellets in the worm bins that are being used for maybe a market garden of a half acre on this five ten acre piece of property, whose main product is meat but now we have industrial level production of worms and worm castings we've got a business onto itself you have a business that honestly you could hire someone with the right mindset take 20 percent of the business and they could fully pay for themselves and have a career running a worm farm on your property like that especially if we start tying more into it we can put in some troughs. We can grow some azola. We start taking azola into our compost with our biochar. We're making a supercharged product. We put that out under its own brand. What I'm telling you is when you get up into the five to 10 acre scale here, you actually, when you take these two things that most people didn't even know about 10 years ago, plenty of people did, but most people did not know what azola was or biochar was 10 years ago, maybe less. And you add them to this, you immediately change everything. You know, these are what you would call like in nature, we have a thing called a trophic cascade. And a very famous example of this was returning the wolves to Yellowstone and the Yellowstone region. Even though a lot of ranchers don't like it, I understand that. But when the wolves started to prey, on the wildlife like the elk and change the pattern of behavior of the megafauna, your bison, your elk, your deer, a whole series of events happened that literally the river itself changed its course to its more traditional course. It was less straight, more windy because the, the, the banks of the river were eroded less because these large animals spent less time just hanging out in the open and, and, browsing all the way up to the edge of the river. They had to behave more naturally because there was a predator. That's a trophic cascade. 
These things are kind of like maybe a reverse trophic cascade. You stick them into an operation and they magnify everything. You reduce feed costs with both of these technologies. And start thinking of them as what they are. They're technologies. It's a plant and it's charcoal. No, they're technologies. The plant sitting out there minding its own business, growing in an eddy in a creek is a plant. When I take a handful of it, bring it into my operation, put in five kiddie pools in a half-shaded area, and infuse them with some duck manure, okay, and grow a whole bunch of it and cut my feed bill in half, Azola just became a technology. Yeah? Azola just became a technology. When I take biochar and I add it to my feed and I reduce the methane off-gassing from my manure and improve the quality of its fertility when I compost it, Biochar is the technology at this point. And these are two decentralized technologies. Again, I call them decentralized because anybody can do it. They can be done anywhere. And they do not work well with centralization. Now, we've gone up to like a 10-acre farm here. Let's take this with a little bit more size to it and start to realize that these technologies being decentralized start to not be as effective. Even if you can do it, what you're getting out of it isn't as good. So compare it to like, I can be anywhere in the country and I can order a Domino's pizza. It will be like the other Domino's pizza I ordered, unless the place really, really sucks. It's going to taste the same. It's edible. If you've, if you've never had really good pizza, you might even think it's good. Yeah? But because we're making something that's in a, 20,000 stores and has to be delivered anywhere in the world, the same size and shape every time, quality goes down. Now, there's a little place, if you're ever in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, it's actually the town that's north of Broken Bow where all the tourist stuff is, I can't remember what it's called. It's called the Grateful Head Pizza Shop. Grateful, like Grateful Dead, Grateful Head. And if you eat that pizza, and then go eat a slice of Domino's. You will throw the slice of Domino's in the ditch and walk away from it like you should have in the first place. Right. You can't take that pizza and turn it into a national brand. I'm sure you could, but you would lose quality. There's no way you can have a thousand stores making that pizza the same way. But you can have a thousand stores that make pizza that's that great, but each one will have their own little nuances to it. That's these technologies. Let's say I decide, you know what, I'm going to revolutionize fertilizer, and I'm going to make enough Azola fertilizer to supply the entire state of Kansas enough for their nitrogen needs for corn. Bluntly, good luck. How much space do you have to dedicate to grow enough Azola? How much waste stream do you need? How much disruption to life and quality of life in that area does that require? But I want enough nitrogen on my 10-acre farm for my two acres under cultivation? I can do that. So let's think about biochar for a second as we scale up. If I want to deal in a, like I want a, a, a location that's going to make a yard or two yards of biochar a day, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's, but it's very doable. If you talk, I mean, all you have to do, if you want to understand how much waste stream there is out here, right? About five miles from me, there's a place called Silver Creek Materials. And 
if you go down there and you just sit there near the end of the day, you will see truck after truck after truck of landscapers in line waiting to dump mostly woody material because they don't tend to, especially here, they don't carry away grass clippings and stuff like that. It's all prunings and shrubs they ripped out and trees they had to take down and stuff like that. And all of that can be used to make biochar. So if you're anywhere near a place that you can take in material like that and you have the equipment necessary to process it, you can do a fairly large biochar operation. But what you'll find is that the supply of stuff like this is very kind of bursty or it's not that much. And it's also odd size because the problem with that, all the material I just mentioned to you is you need like an industrial level chipper shredder to deal with it. A lot of it is chipped and shredded already, a pretty large chip. But then you need a specific type of biochar technology because wood chips are not really the best. Like the best thing you could find, honestly, would be like a lumber furniture cabinet shop that's milling raw lumber. And they have all their cutoffs and trimmings and stuff like that. They have no way to get rid of that other than burn it. And most of them, they can't burn it because the EPA people get mad at them. So they need to get rid of it. Bob Wells operation, they literally have a truck pull up and forklift off material like that that they put into the retorts. Now, you're trying to do this at an industrial level scale, like Silver Creek Materials is making compost and, and stuff like that down the road for me. Doing that with Biochar is very difficult because what you're going to have to do is figure out what is my best waste stream and what is my technology for dealing with that waste stream at the quantity I can get it at. Small-scale operations, you know, two yards a week, one yard a day, things like that. No problem. Trying to make 100 yards a day, which when you get into industrial scale is not that much. You have to get into like different tech. And, and here's what's being done for that. So one of the, the products they're using to make biochar for that level of operation, for the whole carbon sequestration thing and all, they're using stuff like corn stover. And it's not being used agriculturally after it's produced. It's being used in road base, uh, insulation and building materials and stuff like that. And actually it's great for that. I'm not putting it down. But it's not the quality type of product for ag use that we're talking about making today. So there's just this cap on both of these technologies. They can only be taken to such a high level. And actually, the smaller the operation, the more efficiently. This is the exact. This is the one thing between something you want to centralize and something you want to keep decentralized. A, a good centralization gets more efficient at higher levels. Right. Poor decentralization gets more efficient at smaller levels. Farming is centralized because farming commodity crops becomes more efficient at high levels. If I want to grow wheat, as flawed as the current system is, and as much room as there is for improvement, 40,000 acres with a combine that drives in a straight line, turns around and comes back and keeps doing that until the whole 40,000 acres is done, there's 20 of those combines going, you can't compete with that as a square foot gardener. I'm sorry, no way, no how, no chance. You want to grow vegetables through your summer, there's not a, and a varied, you know, I want some green beans today and some corn tomorrow and some tomatoes the next day, eggplant, I want some chard and some salad greens, and I want to have, you know, seasonal, 
and I want to have the things that do cool weather in my spring and my fall and my hot weather stuff in my summer. And you want that? There isn't a farm that can compete for the efficiency of the square foot gardener who gardens. And I don't necessarily mean the Mel Bartholomew book method, but literally thinks about every square foot of soil in their garden of 300, 400 square feet. The farm will never, I don't care if it's the best organic farm out there on a broad scale, it will never make the quality of soil that gardener will make. They can't do it. And that's why you see, if you look at agriculture in this country, there's like five crops that are 75% of what we grow. You know, either grains and add potatoes. It's like, you know, rice, wheat, barley, Corn, potatoes, canola. That's it. That's almost everything we grow. And, and especially if we're not doing fruits, we're talking you know, like vegetables. And if we're calling a tomato, which is really a fruit of vegetable, peppers, then you're going to come down. That's going to be your next thing is your peppers and your tomatoes and things like that. And the reason that's commercially grown is because it's high. It's very popular. But it's also very popular because it's always available. But the reason it works is because I plant the thing. It grows, it starts producing, and somebody picks it or, or some mechanization picks it, and it grows more, and it produces multiple crops a season. If I had to grow a pepper plant, get 20 peppers off it, and it was done for the year, there's no way it would work in a commercial operation. The other thing that's done high, high, high volume in commercial operations is salad greens, generally baby greens because they're quick turn, high profit. And, but when we start to get diverse, there's no – you could go to a certain size and it falls apart. That's how this is. You want to make biochar, you can get to a fairly large operation. There's a point where you get diminishing returns. You'd be better off with a completely, totally isolated new facility because what we want to do is we want to put the facility as close to the waste stream as we can. The Azola is not something that's going to travel well. So we can do a hammer mill and pelletizer and what have you, but the, the reality is if you start feeding a Zola to your ducks or your chickens or whatever, you'll find that they relish it fresh. It's probably the same reason you like your salad fresh instead of your, lezard, your lettuce you know, dehydrated and crumbled onto your plate. It probably tastes better to them that way. But you also start to realize like there's this entire, just like we have a soil food web, we have a pond web. And so, for instance, I have snails everywhere. And when I harvest my Azola, there's, you know, in a handful this big, there's 10 snails in there. Do you know what eats snails? Ducks. And boy, howdy, do they eat them. Or if I use it, like the best thing I've ever found for harvesting Azola is a pool skimmer, like a, a, a shallow net that you use to take, like, leaves and stuff off your pool. When I do that and I throw that to them, you know what else is in there? Flipping all over the place. My neocardania shrimp and mosquito fish. The, uh, uh, I can't think of what they're called now. Something with a G, but the mosquito fish minnow, right? Um, there's tons of them in there. And the ducks come, and that's the, you know, they're going to eat the azola, but they're going for the, the shrimp, the snails, and the minnows first. So how do you, how do you centralize production of that quantity? And the answer is you really don't. The best way to use the Azola for fertility is straight out and then mulch with it or straight into compost. It's not something you, yes, it's, it's gam, Gambrusia. 
Thank you, Terra Hill Farm, Gambrusia. Uh, they're just wonderful little fish, and they, they, they're a live bearer. They reproduce. They grow like crazy, and they don't damage Azola. I'm sure they nibble a little bit on it, but what they eat mostly, mosquito fish, what do you think they eat? Mosquito larvae. There's water everywhere here. You come here and you look, you're like, oh, jeez. I bet in July you're just getting chewed up by mosquitoes when all those surface water around us is gone. And this is like a mosquito magnet. Nope. Nope. In fact, it's, what's kind of fun is to sit and watch a mosquito wiggler come up and go to breathe, and then a little gambrosia just tear his ass up. So you have so much you can do in a decentralized model here. And the reality is I've covered 10% of what's in my head maybe today. And we're at an hour and a half, so I need to wrap up. And there's, I'm hoping that some of you guys have had thoughts and ideas and things that you can do with this because this is the beauty of true decentralization. When we actually decentralize things, what we really want to talk about, I think a better word for that would be broadly accessible. Broadly accessible at all levels. So you might say that, oh, I don't know. Any commodity is broadly accessible because you can go to any store and you can buy it. Uh, that a cell phone is broadly accessible. Anybody can go to a website and order a Galaxy or an iPhone or whatever, and it's broadly accessible. But you can't just easily build one of your own starting with almost nothing. If you can find a shovel and dig a pit, you can make biochar. If you can find a shovel, dig a pit, and line it with something, you can grow a Zola. That's what I, when I say broadly accessible, I mean, not only can anybody participate, but anybody can literally become a participant at any level. And that's where we get the greatest innovation. Look at what's gone on with, with Bitcoin. The innovations of, and, and using blockchain technology for things like Noster. And if you guys aren't on Noster yet, my Noster pub keys down there in the video notes, you should totally follow me and get on Noster because what I'm watching is like, Features being developed for platforms on Noster so much faster than companies like Twitter or Facebook would develop them because somebody that can just does. And then everybody looks at it and goes, that's great that you did that, but we don't care because it sucks and it doesn't work. Or, hey, this is awesome. So people start using it and people go like, well, I, I think I can do better than that. So they just do something. And then you find that maybe you even have like some people really prefer A and some really prefer B and everybody's happy. That's maximum ability to participate at any level. That's true decentralization. And that's what I mean when I say these things are decentralized. So what can you guys come up with? Uh, you get your chance to put stuff in, all caps, please. While I, I'm going through right here and hitting stars one more time. I'm going to go through, like, I got 10 starred comments to go through. And I'll come back over to the live comments, and I'll see if there's any more before we completely wrap up. First of all, Ghoulie, one, two, three, four, mind expanding is a good thing. Five bucks, Jack. Thank you. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. News that doesn't suck. I saw a bamboo shoot get the molten thousand-degree treatment and not burn up. Is there something there to that plant? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means, so I'm not sure. Uh, bamboo shoots are pretty uh, tolerant plants, but I, I don't know what the thousand degree treatment means. Uh, Gooley says, how can a Zola or biochar help South Pennsylvania Dutch country 
where I have several feet of topsoil, it seems everything prolifically grows here. So you don't need a lot of fertility gain is what you're telling me there. So how could it help you? What if you want to feed animals? So now you have a feed source. If you wanted to, you know, grow a market garden, I would still say that your soil could definitely be improved. You, it, it's up to you. Like you have to see what is your deficiency and where can we improve that deficiency. I know what you're talking about when you talk about like central Pennsylvania. Like I think about my grandparents' place, and I say this is a joke, but people don't get that I'm actually serious. To grow a tomato where my grandparents lived. You could have literally taken a tomato, crushed it in your hand, pulled some dirt back, threw the tomato in the ground and put the dirt over it, and it would grow. But here's the thing. What biochar does best is hold fertility in place. So if we farm a place recklessly because we have that high fertility long enough, we will begin to decrease that fertility. And even in places like Dutch Country, Pennsylvania, that has happened a great deal. That reduction in fertility has happened. When we talk about um, Azola, again, the fact that it's a, a fertility aid is great, but the fact that it feeds animals, that's, that's one of its greatest advantages. I would think that a person in Pennsylvania could probably still sell worms. Right. And so having a feedstock for worms as well, like I don't believe there's any place that's so fertile it can't benefit from good bio farming practices that would make it better. And the other thing I would tell a lot of people, and this is something I'm going to have Michael Whitman, who I had on about biochar, come back on. And we're going to get into more about plant biology and nutritional quality. It's very interesting sometimes to take some of these plants that look like they've they're really done well and the production is there. But if you do a bricks reading on the plant, especially like not the fruit, but the uh, the leaf itself, how low the bricks readings are. And that means that they're not very nutritionally dense plants. So their nutritive value is lower. And it also means that they're walking a fine line from being completely annihilated by insects. The higher the bricks value of your plants, the sweeter the plant will be. And that would seem like, well, that would attract lots of pests. But if you look at the plants that are hit the hardest by pests, they're going to be the plants that are under stress and they are not high in bricks. And they're basically a signal to the pest, come eat me. Human food should be food that insects prefer not to eat and would only eat if they were going to starve to death otherwise. So I think there's that. And I think all the other things that we talked about today fit in there. It's up to you to figure out, like I said, it's decentralized. How does it work for you? Um, Packrat says, well, Azola just grow in still natural swamp backflow area of a creek, Middle Tennessee. Do you think if subsistence growers use it, it can't be too awful delicate. It would grow there. The problem is it could become invasive in a natural environment that it's not already in like that. But if it's if it's a creek, it's probably only going to grow in that backflow eddy. Right. But you got to think, you know, I'm not the eco police or anything, guys, you know that. But when you start talking about introducing a plant to a location where it does not natively grow. You need to think about whether that really makes sense to do. Like it would probably make the most sense to put it in some sort of contained environment. And uh, 
that would be my suggestion there. But it is a very hardy plant. It is a wild aquatic plant. That's something we didn't talk about today. Like one of the real advantages of any aquatic plant is irrigation doesn't is not required, right? Because you're going to only grow up where water is anyway. Jamie says, dude, feed the Azola duck water and use the duck water to inoculate the biochar. Yeah, maybe. Um, I actually plan on experimenting with some uh, duck water aquaplex like biochar inoculation this year with the system that I have behind my duck house. That system's actually designed. There's a 50-gallon stock tank. It's upgrade of the pond. And the pond is a 12 by 8, a 16 by 8 uh, pond. It's only about two feet deep. And I grow mostly water highs in that pond, but I have several other tanks. I have seven other tanks that water flows through back into it. But then the ducks can't get to that, that pond. That pond is fenced, duck fenced out. Where the ducks can get to is a 50-gallon stock tank. I fill it up with water in the morning. Ducks go in there, and they poop all day long. And at the end of the night when I put them in bed, I open a valve, and the water can flow into the pond. So it's duck poop water going into the pond. Because I don't want to do that all the time, or not even as much as I let the ducks have that tank, I also have two other ways that water can flow out of the water willow trees. Right, So I don't over-nutrient. I can look at it and say, okay, there's enough nutrient there for a while and cut it off. And if I don't have any place I want to put the nutrient water, that's not their primary water, so they just don't get water in there until I want it again. And I'm planning to take some of the tanks and put some 21-gallon Rubbermaid tubs up on them and run ebb and flow through pure biochar. And I think that will inoculate it with an incredible biodiversity and then use that in some other growing systems. Uh, Vicky asks, what is wood vinegar? And I know somebody answered it for you, but I'll answer it for everybody. It's, it's liquid smoke. Uh, big difference is when you're making biochar and you're getting wood vinegar, you're probably not getting a product that's rated for human consumption, right? Like you're not getting the, it's not the same as going to the store and buying a little jar of liquid smoke to make your ribs taste smoky even when you didn't smoke them. It is, uh, it does a lot of things. One, like I mentioned, it is a pest deterrent, but the other thing is a biostimulant. There are many plants, the most notable would be sequoias and redwoods, that have their germination triggered by fire. So much so when it comes to sequoias, they literally will not germinate seed in the absence of fire. And so when the fire comes, you get the smoke, and the smoke leaves resins behind, and that is that biostimulant. So by spraying a diluted wood vinegar onto the ground, onto plants, we encourage that bioactivity. Now, it makes perfect sense why sequoias would do this. Think about the giant redwood forests of the West Coast, sequoias, redwoods, et cetera. They're so dense once they become mature, a baby tree doesn't have much of a chance until there's a glade, an opening. So when the fire comes and you get rid of your dry tinder and you clear out areas, because a mature redwood has probably, you know, like a 2,000-year-old redwood, it's probably had fire rage across it 20 times in its life. If you ever get out to the West Coast and you look at some of these trees, it's pretty amazing. You'll find these trees. You can't get five guys to put their arms around them, and the entire side of the tree is just charcoal black. They don't care. They're like, yeah, go ahead, burn. I don't give a shit. Like I dug into one with my knife and I dug about a quarter inch in before I got past the char layer. Right. So 
when that happens, that tree is bio- biologically, it's innate intelligence is like, it is time to make babies. There's open area somewhere, make babies. So wood vinegar is incredibly valuable for doing that. And I've seen trials where they take two fields. They spray one with wood vinegar when they sow the seed and they don't the other one. And the germination rates are two to three times higher. And this is China, Vietnam, et cetera. This is old tech, this wood vinegar thing. You go to any hardware store, you can buy it by the gallon there. Well, and they're by the liter, right? Third of a gallon, what have you, right? Because they, they use the metric system and we're savages, so we don't. Um, so that's wood vinegar. Uh, Hanging Laundry said $5 super chat. Thank you. He says, knocking out of the park today, Jack. Thanks. I hope so. I want this to stimulate mindset. Uh, Green Country Agroforestry, also a $5 super chat. Thank you. Show worth sitting down for. I hope so. Thank you for that. And T says, your neocard shrimp make it through the winter. I didn't think they were that temperature hardy. Okay, so uh, that's neocardania, common name cherry shrimp. The most popular ones are red, hence cherry ship, shrimp. The The natural color of these is like a mottled brownish color, and they have all different types of color traits that they express. But in the wild where fish eat them, the ones that are mostly clear or mostly brown live longer. So that's kind of their, their naturally adaptive color. I have them every color. I've got red. I've got mauve. I've got purple. I've got a lot of the natural looking ones. Now, they tend to live in my auxiliary tanks where the larger fish are down in the lower tanks in the system so mine don't revert as much in those tanks as the ones that are living with the big fish that eat them. Because there's not, like, it's not like you're that much more likely to get eaten, but they still do revert that way. The way I got these guys as hardy as I did, and it does freeze here, and I mean hard freeze. And again, what, three years ago, we had a 60,000-acre lake freeze over. We went two weeks below freezing for our high temperatures. And these, these shrimp lived the way I did it. And I guarantee you, if you get some of these shrimp from a pet store and it's like December and a little ice is forming and you go throw them into a tank outside, they're going to die. Right. I have a bunch of tropical fish tanks and I have four 10 gallon tanks. There's really nothing in any of them right now. They're just throwing some plants and some mosquito fish. Well, for a while, I was playing around with what, because I like to breed stuff. What can you do? So I had some blue shrimps and some red shrimps and some yellow shrimps, and I was trying to breed them in 10-gallon tanks. And what you do is you cull out your best ones and breed those. I did a reverse cull. I, I culled out with a net all my shitty ones, and I just, it was summer when the water temperature outside was about the same as inside. If not, it was warmer outside, and I just started putting them into my tanks. That's all I did. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And now I have millions of these things. And the reality is they are naturally very cold hardy. What they can't handle is rapid change of water temperature. That is a no-go. They don't like the water temperature to change fast, and they don't like the pH to change fast. And and this is where it helps me. Uh, a lot of your freshwater shrimps like softer water. The neocardania, which is the most common, most affordable shrimp, kind of prefer a somewhat hard water, which I have in abundance. So they just do great here. And I know a lot of people have kept them outside and not had problems either, but the key is to, to, to start introducing them to your system at a time of year when they're going to be comfortable, and then the water temperature will 
slowly drop and they'll adapt to it. Uh, I think they could actually be a pretty good income source for me if I cared enough to bother with them. And what I would want to do is I would want to selectively pick them out. And like the like some of the unique colors that I get, like the mauve color, it's like a purplish blue reddish thing. And, you know, there's maybe if I catch a 100 of them, there's maybe two of them like to pick out just those and then bring them inside and start breeding them and prove out the color and then market them that way. That would be one way. The other way, because it is so unusual that they uh, they do so well outdoors is I could just probably sell them in bags of 100 hundred various and call them mudbloods or something like that. Right. And I could probably make some money on them that way, but it, I mainly have them. They're sitting in my upper tanks. They overflow down to my lower tanks. A certain number of them will take the big ride through the water floon. They end up in the lower tanks. Some of them survive. A lot of them get eaten. They're feedstock for my fish. And again, when I take any amount of like floating water plants out, there's always just shrimp everywhere in them. And it's just duck feed. Okay. Last comment, unless anybody commented while I was doing these, HC Good, you're making my head explode, brother. I hope so. That's really what I wanted out of this episode more than anything else. I want you guys to start thinking, how can I piece this parts, put this stuff together? How can I add this to my life? You know, I said a long time ago when it came to gardening, gardening, it's something anybody can do. It's something anybody can do. And imagine if you could, in your backyard, produce two gallons of gas for your car a week, you would probably do it, right? And if, and if your neighbor did, you'd be like, dude, why aren't you making your two gallons of gas? Don't you know that everybody would have more gas from the main gas system and pay less for gas if everybody made their two gallons, right? It seems kind of silly, but I want you to think about it this way. I don't, what's a gallon of gas selling for right now, Right? What is it, three bucks, four bucks? I don't know. I guess it depends on where you live. I, I just filled up my car, and I, I'll admit that I didn't really pay attention. It was three bucks and change. Call it $3, right? So if you could produce three, two gallons of gas in your backyard, you would do it, and you'd be like, woohoo, I'm cutting my gas bill. Buy what, six bucks? Six bucks? So then the question becomes, if you could grow 12 bucks worth of food, a week, which isn't that much in your backyard, especially at current prices, isn't that twice as good? And we just, we have our priorities wrong in the Western world as a whole. We seek to save money on the things that cost us the least, and we ignore money on the things that cost us the most. So the same person who bitches about gas being $4 a gallon pays five fifty for a cup of coffee. These technologies are like that. You can leverage them to make money and to cut expenditures, and anybody can do it. And I want heads to explode because I want people going, I never thought of that. And then what if I did this and this and this? Go do it. See what happens. It's low risk, too. It's low financial outlay. And you like this is the beauty of this. I'm in this one group uh, started by the gentleman, Moses. I can't think of his last name now that I had on the show talking about a Zola. And he wanted to do a Zola in greenhouses and then turn the Azola into pellets and burn the Azola to make heat. And I think that's a terrible idea. I didn't say anything while he was on the show. Cause I'm like, you know, maybe I'm missing something. 
I got in a Telegram group. I've been listening to it for about two months now without really saying much. And this morning I said, so it seems like some of you guys are starting to figure out that a Zola is too valuable to burn as a fuel. That's worth too much as a fertility aid. It's worth too much as animal feed to burn it as fuel. That it would probably be like going out and buying the most expensive pellet feed you could for your ducks and chickens and then throwing that into a furnace and burning it. It would work, but it's much more valuable as feed than fuel. Maybe a fuel like a fuel feedstock like for biochar could be your heat source and your Azola is for fertility, is for product out, is for feeding animals. And it was pretty well received. But I waited. I didn't just go in there running my mouth off. I didn't challenge my guest with that because I had actually never really thought about it. My initial feeling was I've grown this. Most of you haven't. I know what a huge amount of it looks like in two days of drying out. I know it's not as much as you think it is if you're going to make pellets out of it. I know it doesn't double every 48 hours forever all the time. So, there's a limit here, and maybe, but I wanted to see what people were coming up with. That's the beauty here. It's low risk. You can try anything on a test case, and that's what I'm starting to see. There's a lot of people doing little things in their backyard. I want you guys in that as well. Grumpy Green Guy says, any reason I should not throw some cattle and sheep waterers? I've thought about growing a Zola in gutters on fence lines. I, I don't think it would do in gutters on fence lines well because I think that would get too hot. It's not going to like baking in the sun. I think it has to be a really, really great solar aspect ratio for a Zola for that to work. Throwing it in your cattle waters and your sheep waters. The only thing I'm going to say about that is your cattle and sheep are probably going to eat it all. I don't think it hurt anything. I just don't think you're going to grow any quantity. The other thing is it likes some nutrient. So you don't want to put nutrient in the drinking water for your cattle and your sheep. So it's probably not the way to go unless you were creating some level of aquatic circulating system for the animals to drink out of. And again, I still think they're going to eat it all right there. I think that's all that I have. All right. Yep. All that I have for questions. We're going to wrap up. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, one of the ways that you can help support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And my item of the day is one I introduced to you last week. It's the Urban Worm Bag composting bin. Guys, I have fallen in love with this thing since I started to use it. I originally got into this particular system because it is so resistant to ant invasion because of the way that it's built. But as I've discovered the air circulation qualities in it, the, the quality and the look and the feel of the compost that's being made exceeds anything that I ever did with worm composting before I moved to this property where I'm invaded by fire ants all the time. It just, I think that it would be best described is this is probably the best system for the most people. I have an extensive write up on it. I have a video review of it. You can find it in today's show notes. And if you're watching the video down there in the video notes about one hour from right now, which is Tuesday, March 28th, 224 PM, uh, the audio will go live and all the links and resources will be there for you. But I definitely, definitely recommend that. The other thing I wanted to share with you today is the shirt that I'm wearing. And here's another version of it on the screen. Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer Soft Tee. This is the black version. This is the one with the small design on the front. 
and the large design that I'm wearing on the back. And you can see kind of here's the back design of that. And this is the dark Heather. This is the one I'm wearing. I think this is definitely one of our cooler shirts. And it's definitely a conversation starter. And you can find it and all the other cool gear that we have for the website and all our swag at tspswag.com, tspswag.com. And if you see all that cool looking stuff that's underneath the video, if you're watching the video down there, shirts and all that stuff, that that's all our swag stuff. It all is integrated into YouTube as well. Uh, through Shopify. So you can support the show that way, or you can become a member of the MSB, and that is the best way to support us. Take all the discounts, use a few of them every year, get your money back. Big time, guys. I really, really hope this spawns some ideas. I want you to send me your ideas. Send me your ideas, TSPC in the subject line, put like TSPC, Azola, and Biochar or whatever. I want to revisit this from a, like, Let's brainstorm together on this. There, this is this is kind of where I'm going with this. What I want to finish with: show me the successful agricultural operation that we would call relatively small scale, five acres and down. Show it to me. Give me an hour to examine what it does, how it does it, where it gets its inputs, what its outputs are, what its sales channel is. Just give me that. And I'll, I'll bet you that I can make it better and more profitable and in more environmentally friendly by integrating these two things to it one way or another. Like I don't know anything else I can say that about. There's a lot of things that are good, right? Like beekeeping is good. But will beekeeping make every single thing it touches better? I don't know, right? And and as easy for people to do and learn to do, and as low a cost of entry as these two things, I don't think so. A beekeeping is, you know, everybody says it's easy that does it, that's an expert at it. And but when you try to do it and you're not, you find that it's not as easy as people say, and it's it's not as fun. There's a ton of stuff that's good. It doesn't mean then it will make everything it touches better. When it comes to the world of agriculture, food production, et cetera, I can't think of a place that these two technologies couldn't make things better. Here's an example, for instance, in somebody that's not understanding the value of what he could be doing. Uh, Paul Wheaton doesn't think that biochar is for him because it's too much work. He's got a bunch of hippies sitting around there looking at fire all the time anyway. They could just be making biochar while they did it. But they handle all their human waste with human manure composting. They have pooper houses and they put a wheelie cart underneath them and you go up in the thing and you do your business and it drops down in the wheelie cart and you throw some carbon in there. If that carbon simply had 50% biochar and 50% wood chips, it would make a superior product that would stink less and be safer to use. Don't care how good everything else grows. You're making better compost that holds its nutrient longer, that stinks less while you're making it, stinks less while people are using it. Boom. Right. If you're saving seed on your farm, we already discussed that if we take biochar and we incorporate it into our seeds when we save them, that they will have higher germination rates and they will last longer as viable seed. It's just two things. And all I did was biochar. I didn't even touch Azola. I didn't even touch Azola. So I don't know anything else that you can just use as a magnifier. And basically, this is your these are like function stacking linchpins. They're the connecting devices. Like in your, you remember like the, there's like these uh, 
toys the kids had, like Tinker Toys, but there's another one because it connects or something. They used to step on, like, kid had them all the time, right? Where, like, you have, like, big pieces and then long pieces, and they connect together. And, like, your systems are your big pieces and your small pieces, your, your, your linear pieces, your lines, your connectors. That's your Azola and your biochar-based systems. So really think, what could you do with this? What could we do with this? And then understand that our future is 100% vested at this point in decentralized technology. Because if it can be centralized, it already has been or it will, and it will become a mechanism of control. And you can't control Azola, and you can't control fire. So good luck controlling the people that use it with that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Yeah.